Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Something to Talk About. I'm your host, Randy Wartelski, and I thank you so much for joining us on this day 17 after Superstorm Sandy. By now, I'm sure you've settled into somewhat of a routine in the aftermath of the storm. And for some of you, that means finally getting power back in your homes. And for others, it means your company has left. It truly amazed me this past Shabbos hearing about shuls all over the tri-state overflowing with guests unable to return to their homes. They took the opportunity to visit with family and friends because that's just what we do as we come together as a community to regroup, recover, and rebuild. This week, I'm sure, has been a busy and emotional week for those of you unfortunately beginning the cleanup process. Living rooms, dining rooms, and Thomas the Tank Engine toys littering the sidewalks and streets, and the scene is the same in every neighborhood affected by this storm. Garbage trucks picking up in some neighborhoods as often as three, four times a day. One woman I spoke with said she couldn't believe how fast the streets were being cleaned up, One thing I suppose the city has done right in all of this, at least for some. So whether you're crying, screaming, or sighing, traveling back and forth as you get comfortable in your relocation, waiting online for gas, talking to insurance adjusters, awaiting your FEMA appointment, or just talking to a friend as she throws out her best pillows, one thing is for sure. Your community is here for you. Scores of volunteers pouring out every day to help with cleanup, dish out food, organize donated goods, with some hurricane drives bringing in so much stuff, there's almost more than the organizations know what to do with. But everyone is encouraged to reach out and do what you can. The important thing is that in however you decide to help, make sure the other side is ready to accept the help you're offering. Often being inundated with unnecessary items or manpower with nowhere to go is actually no help at all. So get in touch with someone before you go out, before you collect, and before you give to make sure your help and money is going somewhere that is needed. And speaking of reaching out, it's true what they say. Chesed is a two-way street. It's not just for the receiver, for the giver feels something emotional too, Today you'll hear from one man who mobilized a group of volunteers who headed over the George Washington Bridge to lend a hand wherever they could. They schlepped, packed, and dished. You'll hear their stories and why they want to go back. And later, how are the kids doing? Mimi Samter is a social worker with Nassau County's Board of Cooperative Educational Services and has been talking to kids about their experiences and helping them deal with, in many cases, their new realities. She'll tell us what we can all do to help the kids get through this difficult time. But first, it started at a shul meeting in New Jersey. The executive board throwing out ideas about how they could help. And it ended in bright orange t-shirts and a group of dedicated volunteers of all ages. We welcome today to the program Adam Pfeffer, a resident of Teaneck, who comes today with Yali Elkin, another Teaneck resident. Guys, thanks so much for coming and talking to us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So, Adam, tell us how the idea of going out to the five towns became a reality. Sure. So, uh, the board of B'nai Shurn had uh, this wonderful idea of uh, mobilizing a force, not just in the community, but to go out to other communities, um, either with bringing goods or helping uh, assist with the cleanup, the physical cleanup of uh, many homes that were destroyed as a result of the storm. They reached out to me as a uh, asking if I would volunteer to help uh, lead the project, um, to get the word out to uh, individuals that wanted to volunteer. Uh, 
and uh, I certainly volunteered. We sent out a email to the members of B'nai Shurin and immediately got a very positive response. Um, in total, we had about 60 volunteers willing to come out on a Sunday morning, spend the entire day in the five towns of Arakway, and assist with various cleanup projects in various homes. So 60 volunteers, and you traveled how? We uh, broke it up into carpools, uh, four people per car. Um, and we actually ended up on um, Sunday dividing amongst Oceanside and Farakway. Okay, and how? what was the demographic of the volunteers? Uh, the volunteers ranged anywhere from 12, 13-year-old children to, wow. or kids to um, uh, elderly folks as well, even not even capable of being able to lift uh, heavy objects, but they came out to volunteer in any which way they could. Okay, so Yali, you were one of the volunteers who answered the call, you answered the email. What inspired you to go out on Sunday and volunteer? Well, um, a number of things inspired me. I thought that obviously this is a, uh, a Jewish community in need, and uh, and here was a great opportunity for us to, uh, to answer the call. Um, but I saw this as a great, uh, to borrow a phrase, uh, teachable moment. And so I thought right away of bringing uh, a couple of my children, my two oldest, uh, my, my daughter Talia, who's 10, and my son Ari, who's 9. Um, I actually ended up bringing a, a couple of my nephews as well, um, I wanted them to see uh, different Jewish communities from all over responding to 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 this uh, to this recovery effort, and I think I mean they they, they helped and 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 they all pitched in, in 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 whatever ways they could as it as it was we spent most of the day just uh, sorting through uh, boxes and boxes of donated clothing, but what jumped out at me was just walking through the parking lot on the way into Sharyashiv in uh, in, uh, in Lawrence. Um, was the, uh, the the license plates of the cars that were parked there? Uh, there were license plates from Massachusetts, from Connecticut, from Wisconsin, uh, just from 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 all over. Uh, people literally coming from all over to, uh, to 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 help a community in need, and that was uh, uh, that that I thought was a really uh, was a really special thing. So that's so awesome that you that you thought about bringing your children. Were you concerned at all about what they might see or? If they would be scared, if they would be nervous, what they would take away from that experience? Uh, I was initially. That's why I asked Adam where uh, where we could do the uh, the most good with kids. I, I obviously I didn't want to bring my kids out there just to, to babysit them the entire afternoon. So uh, uh, you know, Adam was uh, was 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 there in uh, in Oceanside, and he said that uh, the work they were they were doing in Oceanside was uh, was a lot more uh, physical and, uh, and and a lot more intense. And so he thought that, uh, that it would make more sense for us to go to, uh, to, to, uh, to Lawrence, uh, which we did. And, uh, and it worked out great. The kids were busy the entire afternoon, and they, they actually contributed. They, they, they felt really good about it. So, Adam, let's come back to you for a second. Take us back to the initial idea. You get the idea to go out and volunteer. How do you go about actually arranging something like this? And with so many volunteers, how are you certain that everybody who gets in a car and who comes in the caravan is going to be useful once they get there. Sure, it's a great question. So that that was our number one concern is making sure that everyone that was out there on Sunday was able to be put to use. Um, we didn't want people to have to stand around and and be deterred from volunteering um, for this uh, this very important uh, volunteer effort. We initially uh, started communications with an organization called Achiezer. Achiezer is a community support organization that was that pre-exists the storm. Um, based in the five towns. Uh, and my understanding is that they were a very small organization 
with just dealing with community efforts here and there before the storm. And now since the storm hit, they've been huge. That's exactly right. And and the growth has actually been through volunteers as well. Um, the, the, the staff of Akiazer is a small organization. They, they were not prepared to handle uh, s- such a storm. They weren't staffed to handle such a storm. They're doing a wonderful job handling um, all of the efforts necessary right now. Uh, so we, we, we were in direct communication with them. I was actually in communication with a, a volunteer um, uh, who took off an uh, entire week of work to help organize these efforts. Wow. Um, at the beginning of the week, they had on Monday and Tuesday prior to the, to the snowstorm, um, they had 150 volunteers going into people's homes, helping them clean, clean, physically clean up the homes. They were attempting to have 300 volunteers come that that Sunday, um, wow. last Sunday, this past Sunday that we went out there, and we were in communication with them as far as the amount of volunteers that the list kept growing. Initially, we had 15, then 20, then 30, then 40, and so on. And um, on Saturday night, uh, I was speaking with them, I was speaking with uh, Alone, um, who was leading the efforts. And it, we decided that it made the most sense to take the team and bring them to Oceanside because Oceanside had 10 homes, a shul, and a mikvah that needed um, assistance cleaning. When we got to Oceanside, um, some of the residents, some of the homes... So did you go to the command center first or did you did you give out... Where did, how did you give out the jobs to all of the 60 people that came from Teaneck through once you once you got there how did you divvy out who was going where mm-hmm. so we left Benet Assurance parking lot 9:30 Sunday morning uh, everyone got a bright orange t-shirt as part of volunteering it was helped uh, easy to identify uh, the team so that everybody should feel like they're part of a group exactly and um, when we got out to Oceanside there were some people that were just not home. They had gone away for the weekend, uh, and they were not back yet. And uh, of those 10 homes, that, that quickly dropped down to five homes. Um, we had the shul uh, to assist with the cleanup. What was the state of the shul? The shul's ground floor uh, was completely flooded. Um, you looked in the sanctuary, and half of the sheetrock, um, about four feet um about from four feet down had to be ripped out um so it was all being ripped out there was no power to the shul they were using generator they had these uh um drying units that were blowing warm air into the shul to dry out the shul and just the outside of the shul was a mess as well there were you know tables and chairs that that all had to be cleaned up and what of all the sidurim and sifretora do you know if there was did you see any anything damaged there or were they able to get that stuff out beforehand or we saw some damage uh sidurum uh the sifretor i didn't see so i don't know um i i know that i heard that in various flooded um uh shuls there were some sifretor that were um that, that were damaged um but we didn't see that firsthand um it was also we, we were there on sunday so it was you know already a week after the storm right um once we had once we had identified how many resources we needed in Oceanside, uh, we were able to then uh, call call back to Farakway to Shayashov and, uh, and and advise them how many free resources that we had to send back. We sent uh, about twelve folks back to Farak or sent them to Farakway. Nobody had got, been to Farakway yet, and immediately they were assigned um, to homes in Farakway. Um, 
the team there spent, uh, I know one group of four individuals spent the entire day in just one home, one, one uh, apartment, helping to clean out the apartment. Uh, there was no power to that apartment. There was water still in the apartment, about six inches of water. Wow. Um, and the, there was no there was no way to pump that out. Every time they, they would they would pump, water would come back in because the apartment was below sea level. And um, it, it it was it was an unbelievable story of uh, a woman who lost the entire apartment. And she was there. She was there at the beginning of the storm, um, and then as the water started to flow in, she kept moving higher and higher. And she was and there during the cleanup. Yes, and she was there during the cleanup um, with us. We packed whatever we could try to salvage into into her car, which was uh, wasn't even her car. Her car was flooded, um, but she was with us the entire time as we were cleaning up the apartment. And what was the reaction of the homeowners? When you showed up at the door in your bright orange t-shirts, you're like, hi, I'm here to help. I'm here to do whatever. What was the reaction of the homeowners? Um, I, I think the homeowners uh, had a sense of relief for, for the most part. Um, many, of the, uh, many, many of the comments that we received back were um, at the beginning of the day, it was an, an overwhelming task. And then when the the, the the team showed up. It, uh, it 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 certainly made the day a lot more bearable and a lot more helpful. Um, there were there were many many thank yous that that followed the the day after, um, and and people felt that they had accomplished and they had moved one step closer towards putting this behind them, rebuilding, and uh, and getting back on their feet, getting into the next phase of what of what's coming next. Um, Yali, let's turn to you for a moment. So you were part of the group that went to Far Rockaway. Yes. And you show up at Sher Yashiv, and what does it look like over there? Um, as soon as we walked in, uh, it was like a, uh, a huge commissary. There were just, there were stacks of paper towels and toilet paper and toiletries and deodorant and shampoo. Uh, and then you, you walk through the, uh, the cafeteria and they're just, they're, Serving meals to you know anybody and everybody. Uh, they were uh, you know who who, uh, who who wasn't who uh, wasn't able to, to 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 eat at home, and then in in the uh, in the gym, uh, it was all coat racks just filled. The gym was literally filled from front to back uh, with um, with clothing, men's, women's, kids, uh, you know, Shabbos clothes, regular clothes. And uh, that's actually where I took uh, I took the kids. We were sorting through uh, clothing that had been donated, and um, that was actually that that I think was a great microcosm of the uh, of the overall effort, um, where you had um, you had women in shaitels and snoods working side by side, uh, women wearing jeans. And I again, I, you know, I don't think my kids really picked up on this, but this just sort of jumped right out at me. Um, was how uh, unique a, uh, a, a phenomenon this was to, to see Jews of all stripes coming together to help Jews of all stripes, and uh, I think it's it's uh, you know it's unfortunate that it takes a disaster like this to uh, to, to highlight that, but um, you know as they say sometimes uh, you know the worst of uh, the worst of events can really bring out the best in people. Yeah, and I haven't I, I totally agree with you about that, and I haven't been to to Sharyashiv, but from people who have been there, I've been hearing over and over. That it's almost a um, a blending of sort of the givers and the receivers, and the receivers become givers, and then the givers become receivers. And did did you get a chance to talk to people there? Were you able to sort of differentiate between people who were 
serving food or people who were donating things versus people who were coming there to to avail themselves of what was there were you able to to experience any of that uh i i did a little bit and uh i think the the uh the first lady that i spoke with um she was very nice um so i asked her how she was doing and she said that uh she was doing fantastic because she had only lost power for a couple of days and she only had two other families that moved into her house to live wow. with her while uh while they were you know wherever they are in the uh, in the recovery uh process and that actually made me feel almost ashamed of how annoyed I was that we had lost power for the better part of a week. Right. Um, that I, th- I think is uh, is some really useful perspective uh, for people uh, here who were, you know, when you compare it, we were we were inconvenienced. Yeah. Uh, these th- these people were were really rachmanovatzon. They were devastated. Right. Um, you know, I thought about that when I I had an opportunity to speak to some people in Teaneck about. Uh, the, the storm in Teaneck and how we lost power for a week. It was very annoying. It was very uncomfortable. And um, we had to, you know, go away for a couple of days. And, you know, you talk about your kids. And I wonder if um, your kids asked you any questions or if they, what do you think was going through their minds as they saw their post-storm experience where they went back to school and life sort of moved on and became normal. And Maybe they have some camp friends who were there who maybe were not living in their homes or maybe just, you know, lost their favorite blanket or their favorite toy or something in the storm. Um, Was that something that you think that they thought about? Uh, I think my kids were were preoccupied with the fact that they got a full week off school. Right. So so that... uh, um, it's kind of difficult to, to kind of get over that hump perspective wise for them. Um, but, uh, I did my best to, to explain to them, you know, why we were going, uh, where we were, uh, because, uh, these were families that, you know, our house was a little bit chilly for the better part of a week. I mean, these were families that had, you know, trees in the living room that had, you know, water on the, you know, in the, uh, past the first floor. Um, so I was trying to explain just how, uh, how serious the, uh, the, the damage that, uh, some of these families incurred was, uh, and why what we were doing was so important. So they, uh, I, I, I think I hammered that home, uh, but they, uh, they, I, I think they, had, they, they had a pretty good sense of just how, uh, just how serious this was. Especially when, I mean, anybody who walked into that gym and saw all this donated clothing. I mean, that, that's uh, uh, you could tell that this was, uh, this was an unusual response to what I think was a pretty unusual need. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Adam, let's let's come back to you for a moment. What was your reaction when you? I mean, you you grew up in Woodmere. What was your reaction when you? came and you saw what you'd been hearing about it's it when you see it firsthand um it's really an eye-opening experience i I think it's also just just a humbling experience to go out there and be able to help people um in in such a in such a situation and and really you drive throughout the five towns um and far and there are streets that as if nothing happened and two blocks away you can see the devastation of a storm. Um, so it's, it, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable how the neighborhood, as you just drive through, you, you, you see such impact. Um, and you see people that have come out to help. It, it wasn't just our shul. Um, it wasn't just our community. You know, Teaneck had uh, quite a few shuls out there, um, helping out. And, uh, like Gali was said, there, there were, there were plenty of other, communities that came from plenty of other states to assist 
Um, yeah, you know, I heard that um, in Bell Harbor on Monday, there was a group of 10 Mormons who came from definitely out of the tri-state area. I don't remember where they were from, who bumped into a bunch of Jewish guys who were there helping and they worked side by side with this Mormon group, um, helping people clean, helping people pack. And they came just because they heard there was a need and they just and they just came. Yeah, and and we we saw it first. We were we were helping clean out an apartment, and a car pulls up and opens up the trunk and says, "Does anybody need clothing? Wow. Come shopping. Take what you need." Um, so I, I think it, it really it really brings out the best in people to come out and and help in any which way they can. And I think also what was so important about going to Oceanside. Is I mean again, this is just what I've been hearing from people that I've spoken to, um, people whose families live in Oceanside. Um, that Oceanside, I think, was feeling a bit I don't know, forgotten, a bit out of the main center. Um, and the fact that it was suggested to you that you go out to Oceanside and that you went out there is wonderful because I don't know that that community was feeling as much of the outreach that some other communities may have felt. Um, Oceanside was, was, was hit pretty hard. Oceanside and Long Beach were, were all hit pretty hard. And, um, there was definitely an appreciation, um, by the shul, by the rabbi, by the community, uh, for all the volunteers to come out there. Um, you know, just let, let me read you some of the, uh, the responses that, that were forwarded to me after the event, um, one of one of the gentlemen uh, instrumental in facilitating the volunteers um, in Oceanside was a, a guy by the name of Benji Alper, who is an Oceanside uh, resident. And um, when we went out there, the the response that we got: these gentlemen are my superheroes. Thanks a ton. We had to accomplish today was overwhelming, and then the cavalry came. They were awesome. Thank you, thank wow. you. The guys were they were wonderful. They really helped. Uh, so overall, I think. Um, just people seeing a another community come to their community, and we showed up. I think about thirty people within the span of ten minutes, um, in bright orange t-shirts. <laughs> and you felt a real sense of achdut, a real sense of kol yisrael ervim zelazet type of thing when you arrived and when you were received that way. Absolutely, and everyone was just willing to help and wanted to help as much as they could, um, and you know, we got to work without any hesitation. What would you guys say to people who um, didn't get the experience to come out on Sunday, but come to you and say, you think I should go? You think I should do something? You know, what would you guys say to uh, somebody who would ask you that? Well, one of the ladies there saw my t-shirt and she said, Is you guys in the orange t-shirts, where, where are you guys from? She didn't see the back of the t-shirt. And I said, we're from, uh, we're from Teaneck. We're from B'nai Sharon. And she said, oh, Okay, and you uh, you grew up in 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 Woodmere in Lawrence, and I said no. She said, "Where where did you grow up?" I said, in "New Jersey," and I could I could tell she was almost having a little trouble processing that you know that I would take this Sunday with my kids to come out here and help total strangers uh, who needed help. So I, I I'm you know I didn't want to make it uncomfortable. I just I smiled and I and I moved on. But she was very touched by that and. I think that that you know, like Woody Allen said, eighty percent of life is just showing up. I think that um, people just 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 show up, even if you're helping, just move supplies around. I mean, that's uh, that frees up somebody else to do you know to do something else. Um, so definitely, definitely show up. These, these communities are going to need help for a while. So you definitely have not missed the boat. 
Um, it's a it's a great opportunity to 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 show up, you know, by yourself and 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 put on a pair of gloves and do some heavy lifting, or to bring kids and and show them what you know what real chesed uh, on a on a on a on a large scale looks like. Yeah, Adam, would you your sentiments the same? Absolutely. Um, the, these are communities. These are homes, uh, or people that need to be rebuilt that have lost everything that are need to find a new home need to settle into a new community um there are there are kids that are that are in different schools right now there they've been uh schools that have been damaged by the storm and they've had a move to temporary facilities um so all of these changes and all of these temporary measures require additional volunteers require additional um assistance um and you, you walk into uh to Sharyashiv, which is the main staging facility and you can see the the amount of volunteers and the the amount of goods that have just come in, um, not just from that community, but from around the world, uh, and and it's just it's it's an unbelievable experience. Yeah, and you should know um, when we talk about just being there and and being immersed in it. Um, I do know somebody who was one of the volunteers who went with you on the Bnei Sharon trip, and. Um, when some of the members of the shul went home earlier in the day, he was so moved to continue that he moved on. He he came back to Farakaway and then went to Lawrence and helped out in another in another uh, home. And the entire time, his children were home with his sister, who was in his house because she's from Farakaway and has no power in her house. So she was watching his kids in his house while he went to volunteer in her neighborhood. And then this particular gentleman went back again on Monday and volunteered in Bell Harbor, which was also pretty hard hit. So um, your trip was definitely definitely moved people to at least get out there. And I think also when you go as a group, it's easier almost to go in a group because you have that camaraderie and you have that strength in numbers and you have that sense of I'm doing something and somebody's doing it with me. And it almost takes a little bit of that fear away, a little bit of the shyness when you come in as a group and you come in in your orange t-shirts, like we're here, um, give us work, whether it even was, you know, just packing up books or sweeping or, you know, ripping out whatever, whatever needed to be ripped out. It wasn't necessarily glamorous, but it certainly, um, it certainly was inspiring. Your trip was certainly inspiring to, to many, many people to even to continue to go back. Good. I hope people do. I'm, I'm sure that they will. And, and, and is that in general what you've taken away from this experience, that it's important for people to reach out to others and in the hopes that, God forbid, you would ever need as a community, you would hope that others would reach out to you? And personally, it was it was really a humbling experience. It was uh, it shaped my week, no question about it. Um, I I would go out there again myself, um, be it with a group or without a group. It's uh, it, it, you you really you see people that um, that that need assistance being put back on, on on their two feet, and it's not it's not just monetary assistance. It's not just goods. It's just the support of being able to go talk to somebody. It's, you could spend the day half a day standing there talking to the homeowner and she's just as appreciative of you standing there talking to her as she is if you started lifting things and taking it out of her house. And, um, you know, fortunately we were standing there as a group of five. One person was able to stand there and talk, talk with her, the whole, speak with her the whole time. Um, but a- any which way you can go and, and lend assistance and be present make, makes people feel uh, more comfortable. 
uh, when I was there on my way out, um, this lady from Muncie came and I just happened to be there. She, she asked me if I, if, if I could help her, uh, unload a couple of bags. Um, she had four or five bags from Target full of children's underwear and socks and just basic essentials. Um, I asked her where it was from. She said just she and a few friends just got together and just figured this is what people needed. And uh, I brought it in, and and she said, "Okay, I gotta go." And she just turned around. Wow. So, so th- th- there's really there's 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 no shortage of ways to contribute. Uh, you know, it can be you know whether it's it's just helping actually just buy the 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 stuff that people need, uh, or just showing up and and uh, and, and offering your time. Um, they're they're extremely appreciative, and uh, the uh, the the way they've got it organized is also very impressive. I mean, this is a big effort that needs uh, that needs some organization. Um, hats off to Achiezer. They uh, they really uh, they rose to the occasion. Yeah, it seems like like a massive effort. What's going on over there? Well, guys, thanks so much for talking about your experience and for arranging this this amazing group, and um, for inspiring us all to continue to to give in time of need and to feel together as a community. Thanks so much. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back right after this. When you're feeling all alone You need some happiness to call your own Nothing is going the way it should You're trying to do the best you could Lift up your eyes to the sky Your life's in his hands, trust in him he will reply Guiding all your steps Always at your side You are his joy and pride And don't you know you're never alone It doesn't matter where you are There's nothing You know you're never alone It 
sometimes when you're feeling all alone You need some happiness to call your own Nothing is going the way it should You're trying to do the best you could Lift up your eyes to the sky Your life's in his hands Trust in him Guiding all your steps Always at your side You are his joy and pride And don't you know You're never alone It doesn't matter where you are There's nothing in his eyes For special than you Welcome back to Something to Talk About. I'm Randy Wartelski. We've been talking about the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy. For many children in the five towns and Rockaways and their surrounding areas, this is the first full week of school since before the Chagim. And what a week it's been so far. Mimi Samter is a social worker with Nassau County's Board of Cooperative Educational Services and is placed at a school in Lawrence. She's been talking to kids about their experiences and helping them deal with, in many cases, their new realities. This is Mimi's ninth year with BOCES, and having grown up in Oceanside herself, Mimi has a unique perspective on this storm as she helps the children navigate the days ahead. Mimi, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Randy. Thanks for having me. So I have to ask you, how are the kids doing? You know, kids are really resilient. Um, They are working very hard to get back into routine. They're working very hard to let us know their stories. Um, And I think overall, they're getting back to their new normal and their new reality. And for many of those kids, what are you seeing as their new normal or their new reality? Um, A lot of them are displaced out of their home, not just from power damage, but from water damage. Um, A lot of them have, not a lot of them, but a few of them have had um, fire damage. Um, Some of them still don't have power. And even last week, or as recently as yesterday with the snowstorm last week and yesterday, they have had double power outages, and then it comes back again. Um, it's really just a new normal, and um, being displaced is really one of the largest um, issues that we're facing. Right. It's interesting. I actually spoke with somebody recently who is is one of these families that's displaced from Lawrence, and mm-hmm. she's living now in Brooklyn with her kids, and she went to pick her kids up from school, and she took them out to a restaurant to eat. And I kind of said, oh, why don't you go to Sharyashiv to eat? You know, you, you can do that. They're giving food. And so she so, sort of started explaining to her kids, yeah, they're giving out food to people like us 
who don't have a home right now where we used to live. And I'm wondering if that's what you're hearing from the kids. Are they are they coming in and reacting to sort of things that their parents say? Are they telling you stories? Um, well, first, in Shayash, the organization Achiezer is there, and they are helping, and they are doing a tremendous job. They really um, have ability to provide a lot of different things for these kinds of families. But, yes, the person that told you that, um, the, she's right. The children are learning to ask for things, which is great. They're learning to say, listen, I've been displaced and I, you know, I don't have lunch today. Could you help me? Or can you provide me with a snack or um, clothing or a notebook? Um, You know, some children do say it. Some children don't say it. It's really how everybody processes challenges differently. But yes, the children are starting to verbalize certain things. Um, And we're moving in the direction to try to help them, or we have been trying to help them in any which way possible um, that we can that's feasibly allowable for us. And are you finding that when you said earlier about getting back into a routine, are you finding that that's almost the best therapy? Yes. Um, I think the new normal, as I like to call it, is what's essential for children. They need routine. They crave consistency. They crave boundaries. And they, they need to know that school, especially, is a safe place, and that has routine right now. Um, again, like I said before, everybody processes challenges differently, and, they, and you know, for them, some kids coming to school is their safe haven, and we don't have to talk about the storm, the superstorm, Sandy, and we could just go about our regular day. And for others, they need school so they can have a fresh pair of ears to listen to them and to listen to their story. It's really each child is different, and each child is unique, and each child will express themselves in a different, in a very different way. So you're saying if just for a small moment, whether it's a six-hour day or an eight-hour day, they're coming to school and they're forgetting about what's going on outside of school, at home, in the community, in the neighborhood, and they're able to sort of live a normal life in school and then have to deal with whatever they're dealing with afterwards. Some of them, yes. Absolutely, some of them use school as their safety and their safe ground, um, and they are able to live this um, reality, you know, at home, because in school, everything is safe and a routine for them. But then again, there are others that are just not. There are others that just want to talk about it all day, you know. Um, You know, children really go in waves of emotion. Um, Sometimes they're weepy, and sometimes they just want to have fun with their friends. Um, it's really one of those things that we kind of let them come to us and talk to us and really have them kind of lead us down the direction that they want to take. Um, and, you know, every experience and every emotion is different and it needs to be validated in every way. And we try very hard to just keep the door open so that when they're weepy, we can listen to them. And when they're happy, we can be excited with them um, and let them move forward in their emotions. Right. And um, you're placed in a school, so obviously you interact also with the adults in the building. Yeah. And as you know, somebody like you who grew up in Oceanside, you have a firsthand look at what's been going on. How do you, how do you make a kid feel better as an adult when you're feeling bad yourself? I mean, from the perspective of, let's say, the teachers, the administrators, or um, from your office housed in the building, how do you as an adult make a child feel better about a situation that's probably even more stressful on you. Right. It's very challenging because a lot of the teachers in the neighborhood and the adults do have the same issues that the children are having. I think the the goal is really to, again, just validate the children, validate their emotions. There's no such thing as a wrong emotion. If someone says, 
you know, I had to be rescued from with a boat from my house, you say, interesting, or wow, or, that, or tell me about it, or, you know, you find words so that they know that you're listening to them. The two most important words for children are, I'm listening, and I'm here to make sure that you're safe. Um, and as a teacher, you, at, at the same time, or an adult, you need to seek the help. At the, you know, you need to have your own support, and that could be the support services available in your school. I know someone like me, I offer it all the time for the teachers to come and talk to me, let me know what's going on in your life so that I can help you and you can help the children. Um, but really, it's very important that we validate and we hear what the children are saying. We work very hard. They need to know that they're heard and that they could be heard at any time, no matter what's going on around them. Right, and I'm sure it's possible also that there might be some children who um, would get, who would normally be very okay emotionally, but all of a sudden might get very upset about a broken pencil or something like that. And as the teacher in the room, you probably have to be very understanding when all of a sudden somebody's emotions go out of whack. Right. It's very understanding. I think also what we tell children, you know, the initial crisis is over. Right now it's rebuilding. So what we tell teachers is to look for those signs, to look for those kids who might, you know, normally have all their stuff and their books and their pencils and their homework, but maybe in the last few days they're not having it. And so we have to see any change in, in behavior to really understand where it's coming from um, and to really be lenient and, and okay. But yet at the same time, the children do crave the boundaries and the routine, so we can't let it slide completely, but we have to just be understanding as human beings, but at the same time hold them accountable for school because that's a child's job. Right. I mean, I was going to ask you also, I mean, I know you're not an administrator in the building, but I imagine that there are still some kids who are commuting from another neighborhood. Um, you know, maybe some kids lost some of their books. And I imagine that the schools have to be understanding at this time, at this, tra you know, in this transition moment about, you know, every specific circumstance. Right. No, they absolutely do. I know the school that I am in has um, set out tables of, of clothing and books and pencils and knapsacks, and, and really we've, we've asked every parent if they need help. And that's something else to really speak about is that this is not a time for parents to be shy. There are people out there who want to help, who have help, who, who, who will do anything. So organizations like Achyezer and High Lifeline are out there to, to help you, to give you what you need. Is it housing? Is it carpooling? Is it just taking your kid for an hour or two so you can go assess your damage and really deal with your home and your life. Right. Um, and, and that's important for parents to know as well. Right. Do you think that the children come together as a community and without even really realizing it, being in school maybe is not only just about being back in your routine and forgetting about what's going on outside of school, but also living through this aftermath together and sharing experiences and knowing that they're not alone among their peers? I definitely think it helped them. I think that, that like you said, everybody went through it together. And it, and children, we, you know, children love to know that they're not alone. And even though they experience things that are themselves in their own homes and they think they're alone, when they come together to school and they start talking about it, it they get excited that, you know, oh, this is what I did and this is how I was rescued and this is what happened to me and my... You know, when my phone lines got wore down and my cable was down and we had no power for three days, and it almost becomes an excitement to tell each other right. um, and a feeling of camaraderie, although it's not 
always a happy camaraderie. It's definitely, oh, I'm not alone. And I, and I will tell you, though, the acts of chesed that each kid has had for each other and the community at large has had are unbelievable. There are people coming in from all over the place um, just willing to help. And I, I know you asked me before about Oceanside, and although I don't live in Oceanside now, I grew up there, and I went there back on Sunday to see there was a carload of people from Providence, Rhode Island, who just came to help. Um, the devastation there is really a lot. Um, most people are not in their homes. The shul, the young Israel of Oceanside is is damaged. They're, the sanctuary is damaged. The basements are damaged. They lost two Tifrei Torah and a lot of, of Chumashim and Sidurim and um, stuff that's going to cost a lot of money and time and effort to replace. Do you think that the school has been able to, or the schools in general, have been able to sort of replace the community that the children might feel is lost at home? Meaning... If let's say before, when you t- I, I'm thinking about this because you're talking about the shul, and, and it's mm-hmm. interesting that you say that because earlier this half hour we actually had some vo- uh, we interviewed some volunteers who went out to Oceanside on Sunday, and I asked one of the volunteers if he knew anything about the Sifrei Torah, and he actually didn't know, and um, you know hearing you say that now is mm-hmm. just adds to the to the sadness of it all, but um, you know when you talk about a community, you talk about a shul, uh, I imagine that communities feel somewhat displaced now if they're not home, how are they able to keep in touch with their, you know, their outside of school communities? But are you finding that the school is able to fill that void for the kids? Um, I don't know what Oceanside is doing in terms of their constituents or their members, but I will tell you that I don't know that we need to replace the communities that they come from. I think we need, I think a school is its own community. Um, and within that community, it's still there. It's still there as much as we possibly can. And so we want that to thrive and we want that to be a success. And we want the children to know that they might be displaced in one area, but in another area, they're completely safe. And we're going to take care of them until the other half really comes back together in a new and different way. That could be shaky because it's new and different, but it's not bad. It's not a replacement. It's just going to be different. Um, I think if we view it as a replacement, that's, that tells us that something that we have is finished. Mm-hmm. And, and the memories are not finished. Right. You, know, you can always, I always have memories of Shabbos and Yontif and the younger girl of Oceanside, and I don't want to replace those. I just want to look back on them with fondness and know it's going to be different next Yontif. Right. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, when I was talking with this, with this woman who's commuting her kids to school, she was so worried that the commute is going to be so difficult for them and, you know, they're so used to going on the bus every morning. And then when we sat down and we thought about it, we realized that the commute from Brooklyn to where her kids go to school in Long Island is probably about the same amount of time that they were sitting on the bus. Yes. And so at the end of the day, and, and you know, the truth is they relax in the car and they talk to each other and they listen to some music. And at the end of the day, we realized also just what you, what you had said earlier that the kids have been very resilient. And the kids Mm -hmm. have been, you know, her kids have managed to, you know, deal with, quote, their new normal fairly quickly because they're used to the commute where she was so nervous about it as a parent. And I I think sometimes as parents, we we get more anxious than the children because the children are are so resilient. I will tell you that I don't think dealing with this crisis is over. I think we're just starting just a new phase of it. Right. Um, what I, I think, you know, is going to happen is that 
maybe today somebody is calm, but maybe in two or three months, they might have a new issue in their home dealing with all the damage, you know, from the water or from the electricity or from whatever have you, and that might set them off and that might set the children off. And so we have to learn to deal with that, that things are coming in waves and that the door needs to just be open so that when our children see new things in maybe a month, a year, six months, whatever it may be, we're ready to help them um, in a way that's best for them. Right. And one thing that you had said when we spoke um before this interview was that parents should be honest when you, you talked about um, when they're meeting with the insurance adjuster, let's say, that it's, it's not a bad thing to tell your child today we're meeting with the insurance adjuster, today we're meeting with FEMA. What do you, what do you think about right. that? So um, I'm a big believer that children um, need to have basic information. They do not need to have things sugar-coated, but in a situation like that, I believe that they should be assured that they're safe and they're being taken care of. I don't think, you know, you need to tell your child how much money the insurance adjuster is giving you, but that they're coming and they're going to help us rebuild our lives. Um, Some children who are anxious need to know the day-by-day And I think sometimes giving it to them is not wrong. Um, I think you have to know your child in that specific situation. Right now, because this is such a random event and we can't plan it and we don't know when the next time will be or will not be, we have to do everything we can to make sure the children feel as safe and as secure and as sheltered, as not in terms of the environment, but physical shelter, um, as best as we possibly can. Right, so you have some very specific ways, and I know some of these you've mentioned earlier, some very specific things that we can do to help our kids. So number one, you say everyone processes challenges differently. So yeah. when, you're t- when you're a teacher and you're talking to your students or a parent talking to your child, how do you know how they're going to react to something that you tell them? You don't know how they're going to react. What you have to do is, like you said before, be open and be honest and be real with them. And if they say, okay, and walk away, then that's okay. If they sit and cry, then you sit with them and talk to them. I think you need to take, let them take the lead, but the most important is to keep that door open that they can come to you at any time. Um, I think another thing that's so important is that there's no such thing as a bad feeling. Right. So if they feel sad or mad or glad or whatever it is, that's the right feeling for them at that moment. And we need to validate that whatever they're feeling, it's okay in that moment. And sure, you're feeling happy right now. That's okay. That means your life is getting back to normal. Um, Children can also have waves of emotion, and we don't want to put our emotions as adults on them. So if you're feeling anxious, that doesn't mean that your child is going to be feeling anxious. Right. So in a sense, Um, you have to keep, in a sense, you have to keep your emotions in check as well. Um, You have to keep your emotions in check to a certain point. Um, Again, we spoke about letting them, letting the children know what's going on, but they don't need to know that you're anxious because you didn't get as much money from the adjuster as you wanted, or it's going to take a little longer, or maybe financially you're in a situation now where you don't know how you're going to make it happen. They don't need to know those details. And while that's a normal emotion for you and you have to deal with it, the children don't need the nitty-gritty. And I think also as parents and as adults, we have to remember the children are not our best friends. We have our own support. We can't talk to them like they are our best friends. They need to know the basics, but not more. Right. So you say they can have waves of emotions. It might be good to speak of the progress that's going on with the damage, right? It might be good yeah. to tell them what's going on. Today I'm doing this, tomorrow I'm doing that. Today you're getting new floors. 
That's a yeah. good thing. Um, assure them that they are safe and taken care of. And you said keep keeping the door open to talk. What happens when a parent or a teacher feels overwhelmed and doesn't know where to turn? What do you suggest in that? I suggest situation? they ask for help. Um, you know, I know that in my school, I, I we make lists and we call each parent and we, you know, that we know is distressed and we say, please, how can we help you? And we're not calling just because I, I, I want to call you. I mean, I think that's, it's great that I'm calling you, but I really want to help you. Um, there are so many people out there and it's so wonderful how the outreach and the outpouring of help is coming our way. You need to take advantage. If you're feeling overwhelmed, a teacher can go to support staff, can go to an administrator, a parent can go to a teacher, a parent can come to the support staff in a school, they can come to a rabbi, they can come to a close friend, or they can call High Lifeline who really deals with these um, tragedies or crises on a daily basis. Right. So, the, so parents and teachers should feel comfortable to reach out. Yes. For sure. They should definitely be comfortable to reach out. And they can also say to the child, you know what, I don't know right now, I'll get back to you. Right, I don't you know, know. I don't know is an okay. answer too. I don't know the answer. It's okay to show the child that you're a human being. Right, right. And so long as you are trying to provide them, as you said earlier, with a sense of safety and a sense of security, mm-hmm. even if um, you yourself might not be feeling so safe and secure in your current situation, it's important right. to make them feel safe. Showing the children um, love and consistency is really so important just to make sure that they know that they, their classroom is a safe haven um, and their home is a safe haven. That's, that's it. That's all they ever really want. Right, and I think uh, earlier you had mentioned something about making sure that they don't take advantage of all of you know, the leeway that we're giving them right now is also an important thing, keeping boundaries. Keeping boundaries is absolutely important and going back to your routine as best as you possibly can. You know, you're getting off the bus, homework, um, nightly routine. In the best possible way, you, you need to start keeping it up. I think as parents, you know, it's hard right now if we're displaced and we have to go to after school in the five towns, but we're living in Brooklyn, you know, and gas is an issue. How am I going to get to all those different places? Um, so you can create a new routine, but keeping the boundaries is the most important thing right now because, you know, kids lost all their toys. That doesn't mean that they have to be replaced tomorrow. You know, you don't have to replace them um, just because your kid doesn't have their iPod anymore. Right. You know, they, they can learn that not everything, you know, is immediate. Um, but at the same time, it is valuable to them and it is important to them. And it is something that they lost that to some children it really is the extent of their world, and they need to feel validated that you understand that it's a loss, but we still have to go back to some semblance of normalcy and boundaries and routine and what's important. Right, and you think that the other thing, I know that people have been stressing this as well, that is so hard for us as adults also sometimes to swallow, is to remind them also that, you know, these are things. We can get another pencil. We can get another backpack. We can get a backpack that's even nicer than the backpack you had before, right? You think that it's important to remind children that, that, that these are things and we can, we can replace those things that we lost, like you said earlier, without forgetting about the things that we had. Um, you know, I think everybody values different things. Um, to children, their toys and their stuff is very important. Um, you know, it, it, it's their things and it's their important things. Um, and we have to validate that we see that it's important, but right. we are safe. 
you know, don't negate the fact that it's a thing um, or a, a material item. We need to make sure that they know that we understand that it's important to them, but it's still a material item. And it's also each parent, it, it, they need to decide for themselves how to explain that to the children, what their family believes in. Um, it's not for me or anybody to tell you what your family believes in. That's something that each parent has to decide. But again, it goes back to, you know, validating what each child feels. Right. Mimi, thank you so much for your insights and for everything that you're doing for the community. And um, I thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. We hope we've given you something to talk about. Let's give them something.